This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Michael Hyatt. Michael's an active investor and entrepreneur. In this episode, we discuss Michael's first venture, what founders he likes to invest in, the founding of Creative Destruction Lab, and look at the Canadian tech space. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Hyatt. Michael, I'd love to start with your time back in university. You went to Western. What was that experience like? And what was one of your first work experiences? Was that with Diadem when you first came out of university? Okay, so the truth is I went to Western... And I went to Western because I was the only university that took me. Um, I wasn't a great student, but I worked. I want people to know, like, I didn't screw around in high school stuff. I just like I worked really hard. I just maybe I'm pretty sure I got something wrong with me, but uh, I I was never top of the class, but I was probably a pretty hard worker. I got into Western probably barely uh, and I got into a science program. because, of course, I wanted to go to med school and I wanted to be a doctor. Um, that's not quite where I landed. Uh, and uh, you start to realize as you get through university, you start going through it, what med school selects for. They generally don't select for people like me that aren't like have a 94 average and all the rest of it and, 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 and all that. So I went to Western, I got a biochem and chem degree and I graduated uh, in the 90s and I, and I graduated straight into a recession. And my brother and I had started a, a software company then, uh, but back when it was the internet was just just coming out, so we would actually. Uh, it's hard for uh, uh, one of your twenty-five-year-old viewers or thirty-year-old viewers to catch on to this one, but we would actually save software to a disk and actually go to a place called the post office and actually mail people disks and then call them up and ask them to install the disk to take a look at your software demo. So that that's how that's how you did a demo in the nineties. Uh, you know, there was no uh, Zooms or, you know, Wi-Fi or, you know, SaaS software or, you know, VCs flying everywhere like this. 
there was no system. It was just a, a bit of a wild west and a new technology. So yeah, we started off with Diadem. It was an engineering software. My dad was a chemical engineer. We built a piece of software and sold it around his industry. And uh, that's where we got our start. Got you into software. Like you, you kind of did a biochemistry degree there. Um, did you have a technical background? Did your brother have a technical background? Like what got you interested about software? My brother was just a natural genius coder. He taught himself to code. God, I remember he taught himself to code, you know, on an Amiga. I mean, people can Google what an Amiga is. This is like going way back. I mean, you know, and, you know, the Pentium, early Pentiums, the 200s, the 300s. I remember all that stuff. And as kids, we had the Commodore 64. But no, no, no. We had the VIC-20. We had the VIC-20. Now Google that. That's, that's a computer with 20K of RAM. Or is it RAM? I guess it is. Who needs more than 20K anyways? Uh, and uh, we used to play these video games on it called Pirate's Cove. And, and, and this is going to shock everybody. We used to take literally an audio cassette and put it in a cassette machine and press play on the cassette. And it would boot the software up onto the screen. And you, there was no interface. It was just like words. And you would, Pirate's Cove was our first game we ever played. I don't know why I'm going into that right now, but I just remember... You know, you type, you know, go to the beach and you say, I'm at the beach and, you know, I don't know, whatever. It was really funny. It's crazy how fast tech has changed. What what Diadem, doing that experience of like entrepreneurship so early out of university, what was the learning experience there? Um, maybe majority of your classmates were jumping into full-time jobs at more established companies. What was that kind of entrepreneurial experience like? Look, there wasn't that much an opportunity. Bell Canada owned the, look, look Bell Canada at that time, the big, it was blue. You get these blue and white ugly bills. And, and you, if you wanted to call uh, the United Kingdom, it was like three bucks a minute, no matter what, you know, eight bucks a minute on prime time, some crazy numbers. And they were going through, I remember a deregulation of the phone lines where companies were coming in and they got to like sell cheaper packages for long distance. So a lot of my friends were like going to work for those companies and making this huge number, which was making like $33,000 a year or $27,000 a year at you know, one of these, you know, phone deregulation companies and to take on Bell, or I think one was called ACC at the time and stuff like that. And I couldn't get a job anywhere. I remember deciding, like not knowing what to do when I was going about to graduate university. And I realized that I could probably, I was pretty good at sales. And I thought, you know, I don't think the science thing is for me and neither did the school because when I gave my thesis in fourth year, they told me when I was giving my presentation that I should go sell cars. <laughs> he literally did. And so I left Western thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? And I remember calling, like, um, I, I don't know why, why I, I started calling the banks in New York saying, hey, I think I could be a really good, like, international merchant banker or something. And I think I could go come over there and I think I could sell products. I'm pretty good at it. And they're like, uh, yeah, we've hired all the students from, like, that was a year ago for this year. And I'm like, oh God, I missed the... And they're just being really nice. But I remember calling Goldman and like, you know, J.P. Morgan or something in New York City from this weird kid in London, Ontario. I had no clue. I just wanted to get a job. And everybody just wanted a job because, you know, at that time, Mike Harris was just coming in as premier. And it was a really, really bad recession. I think Bob Ray or something was running the province at the time. And there was something called Ray Days, which is pretty much everybody had to start taking days off in the public sector because they didn't have enough money to pay them. And it was like awful. Uh, and uh, there was no money. There was just a recession. There was no internet. There was no, no power of computing was really, you know, taking on like, like what you see now. And uh, so I think the whole thing about coming out of Western was like, uh, I couldn't get a job. So Western was the only place that took me, then they didn't want me. And then when I got out of Western, I couldn't get a job. So I had to invent my own because no one else would give me the job. So when I was a CEO at young age, yeah, you could read that in a bio, but what it doesn't say is because no one else would do it, you know, so it was a self-made job and that was it. And ultimately Diodem got acquired and what kind of happened after that? Were you kind of flush with cash at a young age? Were you looking at new opportunities to tackle with your brother or other co-founders? Um, it's really funny. I got out of Western when I was 22 and we're doing Diadem, and we would sell the licenses of this software for $3,000 a seat. And then we, would, we wouldn't charge you maintenance because we didn't even understand what that was. We didn't understand recurring revenue or charge. A, then we got smart. We started charging like 400 bucks a year maintenance on it for upgrades. And like, it took us a while to figure that part out. But I would say in our, in our first year, 
in our first operating year, we made like something like $800,000 in sales, which if you think about it, it is so big. It's crazy. I, that's me sitting in the back room with a telephone and a book and no computer and cold calling this book and selling these diskettes through the mail. Like just, just, just think about that. You, you see all these companies now that have like 50,000 in ARR, uh, you know, and MRR trying to get to ARR. There was, a, there was no such thing. And I was literally just selling seats of this engineering software that we invented. It was really good software. We really knew it was the best, but it was literally, I would sit in this back room. I'd get there in the morning. I don't know if I even drank coffee at that time. I'd sit in the back room. I had, I didn't have a computer. Like I just had this book of, of oil and gas companies because that's who we're selling to. And I would open it up. And I would just start cold calling whatever numbers in the book. And I would find the lead engineer in that company and say, you got to try this software. And I'd, he'd say yes. And I'd write his name and number and I'd send him the, and every day at the end of the day, I'd go, I'd go to the post office with a big box of diskettes with all the guys' names on it. And then a week later, because I had to track when I mailed those, I would call in and say, hey, John or Bob or whatever. And typically it was Texas. And that was so good because I just, Americans, it was just fascinating to me at the time, right? Because I never really worked in America. They would just buy, right? And like Texas would just buy. And Canadians were so conservative. And, 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 and it's, this is another weird thing is like when they say to you, well, where are you calling from? And you would say, uh, Canada. And they go, Canada? And they would say it like you were like saying Iceland or like you know, Finland or something or Green, Greenland or like they'd be so shocked that there's a human calling from Canada. Do you have phones? Do you have a 24-hour day? Does the sunrise? And uh, so just just trying to kind of a little bit hide that you're Canadian because it was like a like what do you, what, where does the software even come from? And so we spent all our time selling to these oil and gas companies and these petrochemical companies. And you know, I I bought my first house up in Richmond Hill because that's where I grew up when I was 24. So two years later, a year later. Uh, and we'd, we'd have all this profit in the company because, you know, we didn't have many employees and we didn't know what venture capital was. We didn't. So we'd have to like bonus the money down so we could get the shred credit and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and it was really weird because by the age of 24, 25, I was pretty much, well, theoretically a millionaire, self-made out of Western with no money and no job looking for $30,000 a year job. Ended up being a millionaire a few years later just by, I guess, aggression and cold calling with my brother's amazing software. And then basically being extremely lonely because here I am in a house in Richmond Hill. I'm 25 and I don't know anybody. There's no nightclubs. There's nothing going on. There's no fun. Like, I'm like, this is terrible. I'm 25. I have a house in Richmond Hill. Like, shouldn't I be married with three kids? Like, what's going on with my life? And so I like, I, I tapped out, I said, uncle, and I, and I sold my house when I was 26 or 27. And I just moved to Toronto and started to get a life. And around that time, is that when you're, you kind of exited Diodem, then you're kind of looking to build Blue Cat? When was that kind of Blue Cat transition? And what were those early days like? We built Diadem because my dad had the idea and then we built around it. We didn't really want to pick this industry, but what was amazing about Diadem, it was niche and boring and high value and, you know, no big company wanted to be part of it, but we could sell a really expensive nerdy seat of software and it was, we could, it was very high value. So there's very few companies that could do this. And I learned that you can make a lot of money by being niche. And we kept it going and then People can't imagine this, but but by 2000, 2001, the market had completely crashed. I mean, the dot-com, with the dot-com crash, there's been three massive crashes, right? There's been the dot-com crash, the 2008 and 2009, and kind of actually where we are now, okay? And there are three different crashes, and we can talk about all three, but I was a CEO, essentially, or a leader in, in all three, and, and history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, but... 2001 was extremely bad. And here's the, the nut of it. I, it was kind of an I told you so. All these internet, fan-dangled internet companies are all crap. You should have gone back and buy a brick-and-mortar company. The internet is dead. It is over. The internet is never coming back. You should have put your money in Sears, in Walmart, in a brick-and-mortar. You should never. This internet is stupid. I told you so. That was what the market did by by kind of March 2001. And I mean, we're talking like tech stocks down 90%. Some, some, some of them have happened today, but it's very, very different. 
Globally, there was only 80 million broadband subscribers in the early 2000s. Like now there's three, four billion, but there, there wasn't enough human beings on fast enough internet to have commerce. That was the differential. And we didn't understand that. And we didn't understand how exponentially it was moving, right? And that was the problem between Netflix and, and then Blockbuster. They didn't understand it was coming faster than they, they thought to the home. But, you know, we started Blue Cat um, because by accident, but because we needed to buy a DNS server for our company and somebody wanted us to pay $40,000 for this complex server. And my brother literally invented his own. I said, hey, that's really good. How much is that? He says, well, I have a one URAC mountable box that I bought for about 800 bucks. I wrote the software and look, I made these really cool wizards. Look, it just sets itself up in five minutes. I said, so you're telling me we couldn't set this $40,000 fat box up in a week. And he goes, no, I go, but, but you bought an $800 box, wrote some software, used some JavaScript in the front and we can set up DNS in five minutes. I said, let's sell this stuff. Let's go. And that's how BlueCat started um, in 01. And it was so bad, the market. I mean, you try to convince people that the internet wasn't going to die and that people are going to need DNS and infrastructure. And that's how, that's kind of how we started, you know, uh, BlueCat uh, in, in a battle in blood. And we didn't really raise any money either because that wasn't available because it's like, like now, like try to raise money today. It's easier because there's way more people, more VCs, more institutional money, the whole system set up, but, but it's still, it's hard in, uh, when uh, the, the, the tide lowers. I think that's an interesting thread. And you mentioned it earlier, just about, you know, what was happening in 2001, what happened in 2008 and what's, you know, people can argue, but what's currently happening. Yeah. How, how have you seen these three recessions? Are there similarities between them? Are you able to like kind of see them coming or is it just being ready for these kind of black swan events to happen? Really good question. If I were to say what's the overarching, okay, there was companies that lived out of 2001. There were companies that lived out of 08 and there's companies that are going to live now. What's the consistency of all the companies? In every single one of those markets, the top 10% of even tech companies in all three of those markets still raise money. Why? It comes down to, I, I, it's kind of almost, um, I want to say Silicon Valley amnesia sometimes, but what happens is that we go through these waves where money gets so cheap that we forget about unit economics and we only do what we do, growth at all costs. And if you have a company right now and you're listening to this podcast and your revenue is going up but your gross margin is going down and your burn is going up dramatically, it's kind of, you're probably buying that revenue in some respect. And the thing is, what we've learned is that you can get a top line to be really high. And a lot of times people just take the top line and multiply by some number they feel the market's at, and that's the next round. And everybody kind of a little like lemmings jump onto the hot thing and it happens to be in a hot space. So let's hot jump onto it. But the consistency now in 08 and 01 is that the companies that made it understood unit economics, they understood gross margin, they understood net margin, they understood that they have to sell a profitable widget. You will be shocked at how many companies today have a business and have a negative gross margin. So let's talk about what that is. You basically are selling a product for $100 and it's costing you, to, to before you even pay in a salaried employee, before you even do anything like lights on, rent, anything, marketing, it's costing you $120. And then they have to pay all that stuff. So they're like, they're like negative 50% gross margins, but the top line is growing because you're essentially buying that revenue. And they, they, I think there's this kind of ethos is like, we just got to get market share and eventually we'll fix it. And sometimes that works, but it has to be very prescriptive. Like, I feel like, like maybe the mattress companies did pretty good. Cause I think when Casper came out, their mattresses are pretty good. And they were like 600 bucks. Now a Matt Casper is like $5,000. It's probably priced properly today to be a good business because it's public now and unit economics matter. But when it came out, I mean, it was kind of like just market share for everything. So I think that sometimes works, but most of the time it doesn't because you run out of fuel and what's happening today. And people listening to this podcast today is that, the uniqueness in this market is that we haven't fought the Fed since 1981. We've never, like what happened in 08, the market crashes, it needs TARP, you need all this rescue money comes in, $700 billion rescued the entire market, all the banking community in 08, $700 billion. In the COVID era, they put, they've pumped in in the US $5 trillion 
and it kind of rescued it and, and all the rest of it. But what ended up happening is started, you know, overall with a bunch of other things happening, but inflation came in and the price of money goes up. And the Fed is actually trying to slow down the economy. But in 08, they cut everything to zero and they flooded the economy with, with liquidity. Now what they're trying to do, they're trying to pull liquidity out of the market as fast as they can. They don't want you to buy that car. They don't want you to buy that TV. They don't want you to go on that vacation. They want you to stop buying things. They want prices to come down. They want more unemployment, actually. They can't really say it, but they want things to cool off. They want wages to cool, right? And they're trying to get to their prescriptive 2%. And you know we hit a high of 9.1%, and now we're in the sixes now, but that's a long way to two. So we're fighting the Fed right now. So to get money... Um, it's just a lot more expensive, a lot more difficult to get money. So the bar is being raised dramatically if you want to raise money today. And if you want to raise money today, I think that VCs and people are going to look at you and say, I heard what you say. You have a great deck. You're a great bunch of founders, but show me, show me what you're talking about. The difference today is that you have to, oh, oh, you really think you're going to be selling this kind of client? Show me three clients. Show me three branded clients that are going to pay for that at that price than what you just said. So I think that the, the bar is being raised which it does. And this happened in kind of 2002, 2009, now. And then I'll make a, an estimation. At some point, rates will get cut because we're doing the rate raises right now. We haven't stopped raising them. We're going to do the pause and then there's going to be the cut. Now, I would gather that we're probably going to do a cut in 2024, maybe start coming down. But it's, we're a long way off from that. And this thing can be very sticky. But until that happens, um, we're still going to be fighting the Fed. And liquidity has got to be very, very difficult. And it's going to create just a much, much tougher situation if you want to raise money. Or the toughest situations are the companies that had to raise a lot more money to get to where they, they had to raise, you know, many more blocks of 40, 50, 60 million to become profitable. I think that's going to be very, very challenging in this market because I don't see the liquidity there for some time. You're a prominent investor and you were investing through kind of that COVID bubble, so to speak, whatever you'd like to call it. How did you kind of remain away from that FOMO? How did you have that balancing act of, you know, I want to invest in, in quality businesses with great margins while everyone around you is, is marking up things left, right, and center? I'd be lying if I said I didn't struggle with FOMO. And if I think if any investor comes on here and say they don't struggle with FOMO, I, they're, they're like lying or they're just, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Like you, you always do. You're like, oh my God, did I make the right decision? Did I miss out on Shopify? Did I, you know, you, you always feel that way. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. But I try to remind myself that um, unit economics matter. And also what is my return really going to be? And there's a great saying in investing, which is you make your money on the buy, not the sell. And that was actually something I got from real estate. When you buy a building or you get into real estate, it was really what you got in at that mattered. What's your cost base? Everything about real estate was what's your cost base. And then your net net OI, I think, sits on top. But when you take a look at a lot of these companies, the, the problem is, is if you get into a, a seed round, for example, at a pre of 25 million, right? And, and let, let's say you get in at 25 million. Like that's the number. They don't have any revenue. They're a bunch of good guys and girls and they're getting it together. They got a good deck. They got a good industry. Well, they're going to have to raise another round. Okay, so they raise another round of 50 million, 75 million. At some point, when you start multiplying everything by three, you have to get at it a very big number to actually make any money. Um, I've got a company that I'm invested in. You know, I'm invested in, and I think I, I started investing at a five or 10 million valuation. It is legitimately over a billion dollars today. But because of all the money jumping on top, I'm probably up 10x, but I'm not up 40x because it's the way you get crushed down. So you'd be very surprised in investing that your returns aren't as incredible as you think. I mean, here's a stat that you can Google right now. 65% of all venture deals in North America, all venture deals return less than one times their money. So you have to be in the upper kind of quartile to really make any money in VC. And of that quartile, it's still very hard to see a fund return three times the money to you net in, I don't know, seven years, eight years. It actually doesn't happen very often. It's actually a much, much harder asset category than people think. So there's just very few VCs that can return you know, those kind of numbers. 
And how do those VCs re- return those numbers? And also, like just that example you gave of that company that, you know, valuation at a billion dollars when you were investing at five, ten million, is it going earlier with that risk? You know, is it more risk? Like, how are you determining how much risk to take? Are you looking for like second time founders? Like, wh- what are some key things that you're looking for to end up in that top quartile? I do one of two things. Either I find a founder I really believe in and I believe in their ability to pivot because I believe every founder is wrong on day one and they're just going to keep pivoting until they get it right. So if I don't believe they can pivot, I could probably don't invest in them. So either take money and I get in early and, and work with them, literally work operationally with them like we did at a company like GoBolt, a number of others, and like we get actually involved. That's one thing. The other truth is, is if you can partner yourself with a really good venture capitalist uh, and and actually invest in the VC or invest, co-invest and stuff like that, uh, which I've done a number of times, it can really work out for you because sometimes I think VCs have an ability to bring a certain level of structure. The good ones come into a company and force a structure. The good ones do. And, uh, and, and the outcomes are much, much more likely of something because those PREF shareholders have a way of, you know, forcing an outcome, whether it's, return a capital or an upside or what have you, but it typically fails less if you have, uh, you know, smart money that's active in the company around you. I'd love to learn maybe what your first angel investment was and how did that go? And cause now you're an experienced investor, you know, things to look for, but what, what was the first investment? Like, how did you jump into that? It's been a long time. I'm one of the founding partners at the creative destruction lab. So I was there 10 years ago. So, I mean, I just started angel investing when I got into the CDL 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. Um, one of the earliest investments I did in the top five of the very earliest ones I've done was probably Thalmic Labs that became uh, North One. Is it North Glasses? The glasses, the hourglasses? Um, they're a Waterloo oh. company. Okay. They actually ended up doing one of the biggest A rounds in Canadian history. Um, that was like, I, I think in the top five or 10 of, that I did in the very beginning. Uh, learned a lot out of that one too. Really, really smart founders uh, taking on a massive problem. But you, you essentially want to be investing in, um, look, the number one correlation I can tell you is that great founders generally have great outcomes or have an outcome. I mean, every time I've invested in a business with a founder subpar, I generally get a subpar outcome. I don't know if I've ever invested in anything with a bad CEO or bad founder and had a great outcome. I don't think I've ever seen that. Maybe that happens by fluke. But typically, great founders have great outcomes, and and also you have to make sure you're aligned with the investors that put money in. Uh, you have to be aligned with how they think about it, what they want their exit to be. Um, you know that's very important. Board dynamics. You know, can they hire? You know, what's the market? Where do you usually find founders now that you're you know a prominent investor, especially in the Toronto ecosystem? I'm sure there's a lot of like inbound, or you're just meeting people at events. How have you found like the best founders? Is 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 it kind of serendipity? Are you like just kind of finding them just from like network? How does that work for you? I'm not sure if this is a good or bad thing, but I, I'm approached almost countless number of times a week. Like like literally I could count a hundred to sometimes three hundred times a week on LinkedIn. Most of it is a lot of noise and a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. But if I glance at it and I think that is even a hope in hell, I'll take another glance and I'll see if it's something. And then out of a hundred, maybe I speak to one or two of them. That's one way. Um, I also get approached a lot by people who know people saying, Hey, I'm doing a round or I know this great founder. When I have a friend who's great and says, I know a great founder that's, that's an indication that I want to speak to the person. Um, I also, um, I'm very much a meat and potatoes kind of person. I'm very much about unit economics and gross margins and numbers and a way to make money. I don't really like ones that run on hype, run on, you know, like one time AI was everything at one time. It was, I'm sure chat GPT is going to be everything now. And like, there was one time that this was everything. And this was like blockchain was everything at one time. Crypto was everything at one time. Like, and everybody just kind of almost like closes their eyes and invests, you know, and I'm talking very significant investors. I mean, put money into things that they shouldn't. And I try not to get trendy with it. I try to figure out, you know, is this a really a great business? Because fundamentally great businesses have a way to make amazing cash flow at some point, right? I mean, the early investors in Facebook understood the power of this platform to make incredible cash flow. So whatever you have to say about Facebook and privacy and all that, it is a cash register, you know? 
you know, and those investors knew what it was going to be. They understood that it would have so much power and pricing pressure over um, on control over uh, advertising and that kind of thing. Same thing with Google. Once you've made an investment, where do you add value as an investor? You know, some people talk about it as like a coach player relationship. Are you just available to them to chat through any problems they have, help them with anything? Do you have a specific area that you're like very, very good at and you kind of just focus on that? Like, what do you focus on once you've invested? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I am pretty much a potpourri, a bit of a smorgasbord. Like I, since I was a CEO for so long, you can't really throw something at me that I probably broadly haven't seen, you know, from everything from disputes to sales to closing deals. I mean, I physically traveled the world selling to, you know, many fortune accounts. I, I've seen a lot of things. I, I tend to be very, very strong on sales and operations, um, strong on finance, but I, I tend to do a player coach. I tend to tell them what I would do. I think maybe the downside of working with me is I'm probably a little overly candid. And if you would like a hug, I need to get better at giving hugs because I'm, I just tend to tell them what I think about what they're doing in a the nicest way I can. I'm just like, dude, I'm standing here. I see a train coming down the track. Now you don't believe there's a train. I see a train. There's a train there. Um, I mean, I remember two quarters ago telling a lot of people, listen, this market is, it, it's getting, this is, this is getting tough. Uh, I remember going to events and having this conversation with their CEOs and they kind of look at me like I'm, you know, Molly Penny running around the, the farmyards saying the sky's going to fall. I'm like, look, that interest rates are going up hundreds of percents in multiples, right? In the sense that it's going from like overnight of 0.5 to two to four to six. And this thing could keep going and, you know, the liquidity is going to dry up. And so if you're not profitable or can't get to profitability, you know, or can't make it to 2024, this is going to be a hard year. And you know, it's coming in because now you're seeing, if you dial, dial the newspapers back, right? Like if you go to Sean Silkoff at the Globe, the joke would be like, I'd call Joe, I, I talked to him. It's like, hey, Sean, another day, another unicorn. Like literally in 2020, the guy would like print a unicorn a week or something like that. Oh, someone's so a unicorn. And it just, it, that, that in itself doesn't sound right. And now like we've been in a year, year and a half and you don't see a single one of those, right? Things get priced eventually where they should be priced. Uh, but the great businesses do well. And um, uh, I would say that, you know, working with me is not for the faint of heart. Like I generally pretty candid, I'm an operator. And, and sometimes people aren't ready to hear certain things about their businesses. You mentioned CDL earlier, and I know you're involved as a venture partner or an LP in many funds. What was that time like when you were spinning up CDL? What was the Canadian tech ecosystem like? And what do you think about the Canadian tech ecosystem today? Like all these reductions in forces, layoffs, uh, you know, valuation crunches, but, you know, optimistically, what does that look like in five, 10 years? I am so proud of Canada and what we've done, especially here. And I'm so proud of the CDL. And, you know, I tell you, the thing about the CDL, when you go into that room, like you can be smart and you'll find out how not smart you are very quickly. At least I do. Like you, everybody has 15 minutes of fame in that room. And so like, you know, you're sitting, you know, you might be good, you know, but the guy sitting next to you invented some two, new type of, you know, jet engine or, you know, some, uh, you know, it's some crazy thing for cancer. And you're just like, you're humbled very quickly. So the IQ in the room, just from economists and scientists and data people, I've never been more impressed. The reason I've gone there for 10 years and I keep going is I literally go to school and I learn listening to the other people. They're the other mentors. They're just... I'm super impressed. I'm super impressed with Toronto, Waterloo, Montreal, Vancouver, all across our country. Like, it is amazing what our country has become. But this reduction in force, like you're seeing, you're seeing Microsoft as we're having this conversation today's 10,000. I think it's 30,000 between them, Salesforce, Google, and everyone else. This is a natural purging of what they do, and then they'll rebuild up again. You know, when rates come down in 24 and 2025, you'll see them. Don't worry about unit economics and get going again up, up up the hill. So I believe that Wall Street has a very short-term memory. These these types of ebb and flows are very natural and they happen. Slowdowns happen, especially when the Fed wants it to happen. You can't really fight the Fed long-term um, because they can put up a very significant wall, and they have, and we're only seeing the start of that now. Um, but I would say that... Um, I will assure you that in five years and 10 years, Toronto or just Canada will be bigger, better, stronger, 
you know, more companies come out of it. I mean, look at what we've done. I mean, it is, it's pretty incredible. The um, amount of venture capital comes through here, the amount of private equity, the amount of large companies, the amount of really brilliant people coming here. Uh, I think the CDL has had a, a nice part of that, by the way, just bringing in people from around the world uh, uh, into it and um, basically, uh, you know, uh, bringing a lot of people's awareness to here because I think we became one of the biggest hubs uh, of uh, AI in the world, one of the key ones. I know we had a lot of the top professors like Jeff Hinton and them, and, uh, and, and we had a lot of the thought, thought leadership here. But yeah, I would tell you in five years, this place is going to be epically bigger and better. In 10 years, it's going to be off the chart. And the biggest difference between now and 10 years will be the absolute deep integration of artificial intelligence into every single type of economy. I, I don't think it's going to be like fintech anymore, agritech or insurance tech. I think it'll just be tech and it'll just be, that's what the finance community has. It has this AI. It has this, it'll just be part of it now, you know? It's just becomes table stakes. And I think it's going to be, you know, shocking what comes out in the next five and 10 years. I mean, I'm going to just put it out there. I think that ChatGPT is much more important than people think it is. I think that that it's an early version of what's to come. And I think it's going to get 10 and 100 and 1,000 times better, not in five years, but in two years, in one year. And um, I think it's going to just get into everything we do. And it's going to help us do things, make decisions cheaper, faster, better. And that's going to drive throughout the world. It's going to get eventually healthcare and information to parts of the world for pennies that could never get it for dollars or a lot of money. So it's going to make legal more affordable, healthcare more affordable, things more affordable around the world, information affordable and easily accessed. I'm very optimistic about the future. Uh, although sometimes you run in four-year electoral cycles and you see bad things happen on this planet because we have the media to see it, if you stand back from the graph, you notice that things are keep going up to the right. Things keep actually getting better. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way by the way, you know, the media hits you with so much because we've never reached you like that before. But I very much assure you that there's very, I don't think there's any other place in time where you would want to live before today. I mean, like, just ask your viewers right now, I'm going to take you to the emergency room today. Would you accept medicine from 50 years ago for today? Everybody would say today. Okay. How about five years ago? Was something so much better 10 years ago? You would say today. If I offered you medicine from today or just whatever it is in 25 years from today, what would you take? There's not a person on this podcast that would seemingly say they wouldn't take it 25 years in the future. But if the future is worse, why would you say yes to that? And the reason is, is because you know things are getting dramatically better. It just seems like you're in the shit sometimes. But you're actually, the world is getting dramatically better. Vaccinations and information and, you know, child mortality and, and infant mortality and and, and things are just getting better. Um, but I would say the way we inform people is not necessarily getting better. There was a lot of probably political jostling there. But uh, I feel very, very good about our ecosystem and the world in general. Um, uh, and all the bad things we do, I think eventually we do the right thing. I think that's a great point. And I'd be interested to see if you see some parallels between kind of like that 2008 time sort of around the time the app store came out and that's where a lot of you know uber airbnb a lot of these app based uh companies that are massive now came from do you think there's kind of a similar thing going on now with this recession and now ai could potentially be that new underlying platform like you were talking about ai touching aspects of all different businesses do you think that that's the new app store that people will build on top of i think that what we learned at the CDL probably rings true, which is um, when a new general purpose technology comes out. Okay, so let me give you an example they use at the CDL and um, Ajay Agarwal and uh, the team there wrote some great stuff on, on, on this. But basically what we learned was um, when, when, when 4G or LTE came out, Evan, you didn't say, okay, here comes Uber. And the reason you didn't is that the technology came, the platform, the general purpose thing came, and then we smart people figured out how to do something on top of it. This is what I think is going to happen. Uh, I believe that, I'm just going to call it ChatGPT, but I, I'm sure there's a million other versions, and I'm sure there's tons of good stuff coming out from Google and everyone else. And then, you know, we had some great companies in Toronto. We got, there's a lot of good stuff. So when those chat, those intelligent chatbots come out, the generative AI systems come out more and more, what will happen is that it won't change the world today. What it will do, it's the compliments. It's the thing that's on top of it. 
what we learned that'll change the world. When the light bulb came out in 1899 at the World Fair in Paris, in 1900, the world didn't change. But light bulb, you would agree with me, Evan, did change the world. It just took some time till the compliments came in and made traffic lights and everything else that you use today. It took time for that to come in. What will happen is that you'll have a generative AI systems come in, like, like 4G came in and 5G is coming in. And we haven't seen the 5G stuff yet. We haven't seen the Facebook 5G, but we will. And, uh, and I think what's going to happen is that it's a true 5G, by the way. But it's going to just create a ripple, a whole bunch of new things that you just never thought of before. And then when they, when they come out and they're huge, everybody says the same thing. It's like, oh, that was obvious. But it was never obvious. And I think that's interesting from AJ and I'm having Avi on the podcast next week and I've been reading right. their new book and we're kind of in that so-called in-between time with AI right now. Right. So like, do you definitely agree with that? Like we're kind of in that in-between time, the technology is growing, the the focus is happening. And then, you know, 20, 30 years from now is going to be like hindsight 2020. That was obvious. Yeah. What I love about AJ and Avi um is that, and I told them this when they brought out their book, uh, is that their first book, as I said, you guys are the first, and they did it in an economist lens, keep that in mind, but I thought it was a very good one. They were the first people, I think, to explain a practical application of really what's happening here. And it, it was illuminating and I found it incredible. But yeah, we are in the infancy, the baby of this. Like, it's too early to, to say that, oh, Microsoft's chat GPT is going to kill Google or Google is not smart enough to go. Like, that's all that's all hyperbole right now, right? There's a lot of stuff that needs to have happened. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, social media comes out and then we find Facebook, right? That became the winner, you know? And, and Facebook wasn't that much different from everyone else. It just had a unified face and it made sure we knew who the person was, unlike other social media places where it was all weird and... You never knew who was behind it, right? So sometimes it's very, very little differences that make the market. Uh, and I do believe that um, that installing an intelligence platform under a lot of different economies and a lot of different uh, markets is going to be huge. And we just don't know what they are yet. And now that I feel like the, the focus on chat GPT and generative AI like I feel like the focus right now, at least from a general population, is kind of coming similar to those early crypto days. So we're kind of maybe entering a bit of a FOMO stage in this market. So if you're looking at companies in the space or your previous investments that are looking to add, you know, an AI component, how would you approach that? Are you still looking at like, will this fundamentally change the business, unit economics? Are you still mm -hmm. looking with those kind of that kind of lens, even though there's a bit of FOMO happening in the space? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not sure a pizza restaurant necessarily needs to put ChatGPT in right now. Maybe they will for ordering, but I think that uh, I think that when you're running a, a great company, you should be trying to figure out and testing things and failing. If I was an established company and I was thinking, should I use ChatGPT or stuff like this, I would, I would, you know, I would start doing experiments and see if it makes any sense. But look, unit economics do count, and profitability counts, and growth counts, and profitable growth counts. So yeah, don't don't just dive all this money in. Let, let me give you a recent example that punished for it brutally. I mean, I've always felt, and I'm not just saying this because it's now looking back, but I always felt the Web3 thing was overdone. And literally Facebook, you know, bet the whole enchilada on this thing. They bet bet everything, you know, and and I could never figure it out because I would put on these headsets and I'd be like, I want to get this thing off my face. And I don't like, I like talking to you like this, but I don't want to go into some weird world where you and I are sipping fake pina coladas talking about this, you know, and I see an avatar of you. It's just, I, I just feel like I'm in a dystopian George Orwell book or something like, you know, it's a bit weird for me. So, but I mean, people, I think over bet on, on something um, and are not quite right. I think they probably should have done some testing first. I mean, I'm not sure who comes up with the idea at Facebook and says, we're going to release an amazing headset it's going to be two thousand bucks a headset i can just tell you that's not going to become common technology at two thousand bucks just by the price right i mean it doesn't take a genius to know that uh so i i you know i i think you're going to see just a, a bunch of 
probably big failures in this chat world eventually, like you said, but you'll see some people that really do use it properly. I'd love to chat a bit about like how you've thought about investing. I know like CDL, again, you're a venture partner in LP and other funds, but primarily you're kind of an angel. Like, I guess, why have you kind of stick into that angel route versus maybe creating like the Hyatt fund or like yeah. creating your own VC fund? Is it just the flexibility being able to do whatever you want? Is that why? Yeah. So first of all, I'm not a venture partner in any fund, but okay. I do advise companies like Northleaf and uh, I was on Georgian Partners Board for some time, their advisory board and Madison Dearborn's Tech Advisory Council. All that stuff, you can read that stuff on LinkedIn. But to the point that I haven't become a full venture partner or, or started my own fund is typically because I, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I really like working one-on-one -on -one with very few founders and building great companies. And I feel like that's where I can put my energy. Um, I'm not sure I wanted to go out there and put a bunch of money in of my own and then take other people's money and get on that hamster wheel as well. You know, once you commit to taking you know, $100 million of other people's money, you're going to be married to them for a decade on that. And you've got to perform. And, you know, I've been pretty successful and I'm not really sure I want to do that. You know, uh, I also had kids a little later in life, so I'm really enjoying my children. I have three little girls and I think that that's a major priority for me. So again, I think I, I just love starting a company or funding someone very early and getting to know them and really helping them build a great business. Um, I'm not sure I'd be great at managing hundreds of millions and going out there and, and, and cause there's, there's some really amazing VCs in Toronto that do really well doing that. I, I just, I don't know sure that's me. It comes to, making investments i know we kind of discussed there about like meeting founders and you were a founder so you know things to look for um is that kind of how you decide to make investments or do you have specific areas that you're interested in and then you find companies there i guess are you doing a little oh, bit of both i'm a big believer in the person i'm not a big believer in so i have to sign off on the person first i have to want to be stuck at an airport with them for four hours. I have to want to invite them to my family barbecue. I don't want to work with people I don't like. And then I, the most common thing that happens is most people I meet, I actually, I like them. They're probably good people. And then I say to them, like, 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 look, I just listened to you. Your gross margins are 20%. You're not recurring revenue. You have no patentable material. I don't see there's any moat in this business. I score you a nine or a 10 out of 10. I score this business like a two or a three because there's nothing, there's no way we can make a lot of money here on this. I mean, you might have a lot of revenue, but not a lot of gross margin, not enough profit ever. Like, so it, it, those are necessarily direct conversations, but there's something like that where usually I like the person and I can't get past not liking the math of the business. I think the math of the business has to work and they have to know how to get that to work. Um, I also don't like, you know, uh, investing in things where I feel like the founder is just pushing valuation up as fast and hard as they can, because I want them kind of really pushing the business as hard as they can and being reasonable. And I also look for founders that value their investors, as in they know what they're get taking on and they know what it means, not just the cheapest form of capital. With valuation with a founder that's pushing that up. How 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 do you? see that like what are like little things that you're looking for is it the way they talk about valuation is it actions they're taking like what are some insights that you've seen over your time i think everybody you know it's funny there's a very very big difference between valuations of 2020 2021 and and now uh and i think ones that pigeonhole themselves into their first round at 25 million and they still don't have much revenue and they need to do another round this year i think that just gets very challenging right? It just, they, you've now put yourself in a situation where you have to do a down round or have a, have a weird setup. You have to do like a 2X liquidation prep and that sets a bad precedent. Like, so they can put themselves in bad places. What I think companies should do is do a fair and reasonable round with people that they want to have investors because you should choose wisely in a foxhole. It's better to take, you know, you know, a little less money at a lower valuation with the right people and, and get everybody in and, and structure a plan. And, at, and then, you know, uh, raising 5 million at 25 and you don't really mind who it is, but you want to keep going because your next round's at 75. And, you know, because I think that 
sometimes I think people go to these summer parties, these rooftop parties or, or barbecues, and they talk to other founders and they all kind of talk each other up and they all, you know, I don't know, you know, they, I, I can't really explain it. They hype each other up with bad advice, you know, of, of keep the valuation going and valuation isn't an exit. Um, and we shouldn't, you know, we had a thing when we were building companies like Blue Cat and we didn't never celebrated raising money and we didn't raise that much. Um, we celebrated hiring great people. We celebrated landing an account, uh, you know, big client. We didn't celebrate around. And sometimes we'd forget to have closing dinners and all that stuff because it was like, I was almost feeling a little shameful. Like I, I'd rather not take on money. I'd rather be building. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, you know, like now you're on the clock. Now you've taken people's money. You're really on the clock, you know, so the pressure's on. So I know you want to have that rooftop party, but um, I think there's a lot of work to do for a lot of people. And I think that uh, you should choose wisely um, and you put around together. I think that uh, not all advice is the same advice. I also advise um, people listening to this, if you're raising money, get, a, get an early stage VC, but also get someone who's a founder on your board, get, get, get a dynamic going. I mean, I, you know, a lot of the boards I sit on have people like me and VCs and between us, we have different skill sets, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very valuable. It's a very powerful combination. So I find it works really well. What would be maybe one or two other pieces of advice that you would give uh, founders who are the primary listeners of this podcast during this next one, two years of higher rates, layoffs, harder time to raise money what are some things to focus on first off i think you here's a concept that it's almost it's a bit of a sacred sacred thing so some people don't want to do it but the truth is is that i think it's probably likely you can be leaner than you think you can be i think there's a thing where you're struggling your burn is too high you know you can't raise money as fast but I hear these people that say, I have 25 people, I only have 10 months or one year runway, I need some more runway, but if I lay off five people, I think I'm going to you know, kill the mojo of the company, we're going to kill the company, we're going to kill the company, kill the company. I'm here to tell you something, that's not true. You're wrong and that's not true. And what will kill your company is running out of money or doing a deal that's really desperate because in 10 months from now, when you only have a month left in money, believe me, when you don't make payroll or can't make payroll, you know, you're going to see some cuts. So your job is to protect the mothership. And my advice is that you could probably be leaner than you think. So if you're one of the founders listening to this podcast and in, and if you're burning a lot of cash and you're trying to get your revenue going and you think you're burning too much, you probably are. And number two, if you haven't done a cut, then you're probably the only one who hasn't. So you got to think about why you haven't at this point. Um, you have to think that if you're listening to this podcast in January, I'm not sure when you're airing this, this is January, 2023, and you don't have a way to get to March, 2024 right now, you have an issue, right? I didn't say you can't raise money, but what I would tell you might not be at the terms you like, and it may be very punitive. So think about that. Um, so I think people can probably be leaner than they think. I think that you should relook at if you're not getting to where you want to get to, you should relook at either your board or your advisors and figure out what advice am I missing? Like, what am I doing wrong here? What kind of business am I in? What am I fundamentally driving at? And where can I get real assistance or real help from people that are, sometimes, you know, you don't want to bring on an investor. Sometimes you want to bring on a coach who can look at you and say, look, I don't have a dog in this fight, but it's obvious this is the problem and you can't see it, but it's right in front of your face. I think there's a lot of kind of ego around your own business. And sometimes you don't want to look at it. Um, there's a lot of companies that companies that get built where they give away something for free, trying to create value. And then somehow somewhere in the future, they're going to create cash flow, And that's probably not right. Um, there's a, a lot of FinTech players in the market, for example, that uh, want to like do things that the big banks won't do. Okay. As an example. And people like, but we're new and we're millennial and we're like this. And then you start to realize why the banks don't do those things because they're going to get killed. And that's why they don't do it. And I think that, that there's, you can't, you can't just kind of stick it out there and say, we're, we're going to help the little guy or do something, you know, you, you really have to think about your business very carefully. And I think who, so in that to, to finalize who you sell to is extremely critical 
So if, if you're selling to a very valuable part of a business, typically the security department or the sales department, those are prime meat. If you're selling to like individuals with, a, with an income under $25,000, that's a tougher business, right? If you're selling a service that's not recurring, that's a tougher business. If you're selling software that can expire in 30 days or doesn't go past that or month to month, that's a tough business. There's a reason why, you know, some parts of the market aren't touched. So I think you have to really think about who you're selling to and how valuable that client is. Uh, and, uh, and if you can't figure that out, try to get somebody who's not invested in your business to maybe put, be a player coach and give you kind of a hard truth when they take a look at your business. I think that could be really helpful in this market. Uh, what I will tell you is I think 2023 is just going to be a tough year. I don't think that rates are going to be cut. Hope is not a strategy. And you and I are going to be talking in September where everything's come back and wow, everybody's like, my God, everybody's giving out money at, you know, pre-money of 30 million and only a deck. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's great advice. And I'd love to jump into the, the quick fire round. Um, sure. And first question would be, what's the best book you have read? And if you're not a book person, then whatever other kind of media or content that you like to read? I keep pushing people back to another book, uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. I keep pushing him back about what's the secret? What, what do you know that other people don't that wouldn't agree with you on? Like, what, what, what's your thing? Uh, I really like, and if you haven't read the whole thing, read the first 10 chapters. Perfect. Uh, what are you most excited about in 2023, whether that's personal or it can be professional? I know you mentioned your daughters, spending more time there, but what would be what you're most excited for? I'm going to have a big party. My wife turns a big number and I turn a big number next year. So uh, we're going to have a combined birthday party. Now it's a secret, but I'm putting another podcast. So we're going to have one big bash. So that sounds like something we're excited about. And I'm just so excited to have three little girls. I mean, being a, a guy having kids late in life and just, they amaze me every day. I mean, I'm so in love and it's so nice and it's so sweet. And three girls is just this blessing. So I, I really look forward to spending the time I have. One of the things I, with my exits that I got was I had the privilege to spend time with my children and I don't miss that. I don't, I don't not do that. I take that time. Um, so I have time for my children, for my wife and my family and for some business stuff that I do. That's my life. That's what I have time for. I love that. And then final question would be, how do you deal with hard times? You were once a founder, now you have children. How do you deal with those difficult times? The first thing I'll tell you, if anybody's listening to this and going through a hard time, the first thing I'll tell you is hard times pass. It's a moment in your life. Feelings also pass. There are moments in your life. So right now, if you're feeling bad about something that just happened with a boyfriend or girlfriend or a family member, sometimes, you know, I do this thing when I want to write this really aggressive email, get really mad. And sometimes I write it, and I definitely don't send it. And then I wait one day. And if I still want to send it the next day, I send it. And I've never actually wanted to send it the next day. Side note. So there's a cooling off period. Um, I will tell you that I've had more doors slammed in my face than you can imagine. Even to this day, when I try to do something, like we give you an example right now, you might find this crazy, but I'm thinking of doing this new startup and getting this going. And I have a hard time convincing people that I'm going to work in that startup. They don't believe it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I keep, I keep having to overcome challenges. So I was never the smartest. I was never the fastest. I was never the anything in school, but I, the thing that I could do and I did do is I outworked everybody else. I kept showing up. I showed up and I kept showing up. Most people can't show up to something for more than 72 hours. That's why gym memberships all, gyms are all like pretty much freely open by January 10th because you know, the new resolution people are gone, right? People can't keep showing up. So if you keep showing up, hard times pass. Things pass. This economy will pass. Presidents pass. Time passes. Prime ministers pass. Like budgets pass. Like things get passed, right? And there are times in space and times uh, in your life. Life isn't about challenges. Life is about how you react to those challenges and how you overcome things in life. And I think that's a really important perspective. So if you're feeling bad or you don't feel great, uh, know that um, this too shall pass. It's a very famous expression. I really do believe it. I love that perspective. And Michael, it's been a lot of fun. I know we kind of did this off the cuff and it's been a fantastic conversation and really appreciate the time today. 
Sure. I'm glad to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.